0: This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. In this edition, families and power. And it's in that context that I'll be talking to Sir Stanley Wells about Shakespeare. He wrote about such things. But first at Author Archive, The Sarina's Daughter, uh, the second novel from Ellen Alpston. Um, now, It used to be that novelists would go and plunder the Tudors for drama. You've decided to go to the Romanovs in Russia. Was there a day when you thought, those are my guys?
1: There was absolutely a day when I thought, those are my girls, actually, and not my guys, I have to say, because I treat this unique, unprecedented, and never-repeated century of female reign in russia and i do indeed actually call the other side here in the uk i call them the tiresome tudors for myself and i'm not going to launch myself into war of roses york yore either so the romanovs are mine um my leading ladies and i we go way back because i actually discovered Tsarina, who is the leading lady of my debut that was published last year when i was age 13 and um My parents were very strict on screens and television time. So I planned out their library and I found a fascinating book called Germans and Russians exploring the thousand year history of these two peoples, the deep hate love, and the fascination they have for each other. Because if you think about it, no other two peoples have been so marred by tragedy in history, have not suffered so much under totalitarian regimes, and in the same time have got such an innate understanding for beauty and tragedy in their artistic creation, be it music, be it writing. And in that book, one chapter was devoted to Catherine I as she was later known in history, but she was born as an illiterate serf. So really the most miserable of rags rising to unimaginable riches later on, by being the first ruling empress of Russia ever. And from that moment on, this ultimate Cinderella story just hooked me.
0: Okay, Um, just give us a, a timeline. What date are we talking about?
1: We are talking the early 18th century. So this would be Russian Baroque. This is about Tsarina. And then later on the Tsarina's daughter, we're looking at the 1740s. So Maria Theresia rules in Austria. I believe in the UK, do we have the Georges? And um, in Prussia, we of course had Frederick the Great. So quite a formidable assortment of rulers.
0: Okay, so let's just go to basic, the Tsarina's daughter. She is the daughter of um, mother and father. Who are they?
1: Her mother and father, what parents to have, are Peter the Great and Catherine I of Russia.
0: Okay. Was she an only child or were there lots of siblings?
1: She was an only child in a way, David, that she was actually the only surviving child of 15 siblings. But she was born as a second younger and hence unimportant daughter.
0: Okay. So she was born at the top of the social scale. Um, did she work her way down?
1: She was more pushed than working her way okay. down because at her parents' death, well, as long as her father lived, he actually thought that Louis X might marry her and that she might rule in Versailles because she was deemed Europe's and hence the world's most lovely princess. And Caravac painted her portrait, really showing her as a young Marilyn Monroe, all dewy-eyed and rosy-cheeked. Uh, incredibly beautiful and a foreign envoy wrote she doesn't have an ounce of nun's flesh on her body because unfortunately (laughs) she had inherited her father's uh, sensuous appetite at her parents death however friends turned foes and masks started to fall
0: so did folks turn again her
1: you can say that she was so isolated and impoverished and people who owed everything in their existence to her parents turned against her and every day for 15 years she had to fear for her life every morning when the sun rose she did not know if she would see the sunset, in liberty or actually at all.
0: What's your source material because this isn't um a flimsy read, you know, we've got over 400 pages of huge detail. So, where did you get it from?
1: I did so much research. I did a year's research before I started writing the Tsarina series. And everything from the Russian classics, thinking Dostoevsky and Gogol, to watching films like Battleship Potemkin, to reading actually. Russian fairy tales, because nothing tells us so much about a people's imaginary as their fairy tales and their myths. And there's a good spot of literary surrealism, actually, in um, the Tsarina's daughter and very important, of course, original source material. As I mentioned, the letters of foreign envoys and um, the diary of a German merchant who was one of the first foreigners ever to travel to see the grandfather of my heroine. But the picture of Russia he gives is immensely accurate.
0: It is a very detailed book, and I I can only imagine it took you over a year to write. And I would imagine that you and your family spent more time in Russia than you did wherever you live.
1: Actually, yes, in in the back, in the acknowledgement of the book, I thank my three sons. I have no daughter myself, but I thank my three sons for adopting Elizabeth Petrovna um, as their honorary sister, but they have to hang in there because it's a planned quartet of novels, and I'm just writing the third book and know already what the fourth book will be about.
0: Oh, I thought you were planning a, a three books, so it's oh, somewhere, in, in I was reading about you, that you were doing three, but it's grown to four.
1: It's grown to four and I actually have easily material for seven. So watch that space.
0: <laughs> oh, goodness me. And are you thinking, I mean, you have been likened in reviews to Game of Thrones. So are you talking to TV companies? Is this going to be like the Tudors, a multimedia thing?
1: Oh, I'm taking you as a soothsayer, David, I hope, because we have <laughs> developed uh, a TV treatment for the Tsarina series and are uh, there negotiations ongoing at the moment? I'm quite often the last to know. But, of course, this morning I found a four-leaf clover in a flower bed, so I'll keep oh, my so fingers that, crossed. Well,
0: that, that's proof. When you write so closely about these people, um, do you come to like Elizabeth, the Tsarina's daughter, do you because it seems you you identify you write in the first person don't you
1: yes I do for these two books I did yes
0: so um, is it is it comfortable being her
1: I almost have to choose that perspective to really explore the person and I find it very important to have the historic detail right but then my girls as I call them are actually intensely modern women in the challenges they face and how they choose to overcome it. So it's the easiest way for me.
0: Is she an admirable woman?
1: Her stamina is admirable, surviving 15 years in the latent terrorism of that court. And in the same time, continuing to witness the birth of a nation because we're not talking just palace intrigue. We're actually talking the making of the Russian nation. And that's another point that makes these books so interesting. But everything we observe about Russia today is already present in my novels. And you know the famous Churchill quote that Russian, what does he say? Russia is a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma. And that's what we have today again. So if you read these books, you will understand this behemoth of a nation much better.
0: And it seemed to me that, I mean, we see that in in current politics in in here, um, the pursuit of power is perceived to be good in its own right, that power is worth fighting for.
1: Absolutely. And again, we see that in contemporary politics, um, the absolute ruthlessness with which especially Russia goes Ahead in pursuing power. Um, Nothing is as abundant and superfluous as human life and everybody just constantly tries to have one up on the other which introduces an incredible sobriety into people's lives and I remember myself when we visited the GDR where my father is from as children people recognized us just at the way we moved because we moved with such insouciance and such confidence. We had nothing to fear. Whilst a citizen of the GDR would just scuttle across the street, fearing that somebody would observe him doing something and report him. Um, so it's it's shocking how that too is still present in nowadays politics.
0: One of the things, the, the detail that comes out, I mean, there's a piece where um, some guy is on, uh, on water, on a river, and there are swans shackled up, presumably to pull him like horses. Now, I mean, in order to do that, you've got to have an awful lot of people to do your bidding and an awful lot of money to pay them to do your bidding, you think?
1: Or actually not pay them at all because the ground cover of the Russian empire were the serfs and hence uh, the revolt actually of the russian aristocracy when the serfs were liberated by a much later tsar because there was no paying to do you just snapped your fingers and you had hundreds of people later on when you have tsarina anna building this ice palace i tried to show the madness of this disposability of human labor and human life that it cost nothing and hence was used exploited ruthlessly
0: couldn't be an expensive production when they do it on the telly isn't it
1: (laughs) (laughs) but beautiful beautiful so much detail, so much larger than life characters you can write I could write a novel about each character in there I mean this her German lover Anna's not not Elizabeth's German um, Anna's German lover Biron I mean what an amazing character this meritocracy there are 10 20 Cinderella stories actually in these books and uh, for me, the fascinating thing is that Serena's Tsarina daughter, daughter actually lives her mother's story to the inverse. She falls from riches to rags, and rises from rags to Romanov in a real roller coaster ride.
0: And, and this really happened.
1: This really happened. Everything you read—the shackled swans, the torn-out tongues—are not going to give any details. Oh, that's the horrible. Of an ice It's horrible. But you know what is worse? The guy who sits in a birdcage for 10 years' time and has to pretend that he's a chicken or his neck gets wrung.
0: I mean, it's uh, and then there's there's a sumptuous wedding and someone decides that it's such good fun that we will uh, marry off lots of people of restricted height, we will call them, to each other, presumably in a big tableau. It's heartless and horrible.
1: It is heartless and horrible, but it shows the take on life that ruled in the Baroque times all over Europe because life was just so precarious. Actually, nobody knew if they would survive the day. And twice in the novel, death and fate interfere in the most stunning times at such a poignant moment that you can actually almost not believe that it is reality, but that too is the truth. But I think we always have also have to say, what a beautiful love story that Sarina's daughter is and what a coming of age of a woman and the strength with which she matures to survive. It's not all grisly and gory. It's
0: Now, I mean, she wasn't born to be celibate, but um, she left. Um, there was no heir. She didn't have children and she was unmarried, wasn't she?
1: Exactly. And actually, I've written a feature for a big British newspaper called The Other Elizabeth, because the similarities between Elizabeth Petrovna and Elizabeth Tudor are so surprising They're both the second daughter, born into a new dynasty, overwhelming father figure, the mother is derided, the real first wife and queen is still alive, for they're never destined to rule, for a decade they have to survive the jealousy of an older female monarch. When they rule, they stay unmarried, uh, dying in a river palace and leaving their throne to a little loved nephew. So the similarities are amazing between these two women.
0: And your woman, Elizabeth, did she do bad things herself? Did she decree bad things to happen?
1: As a Tsarina, actually Elizabeth, the Empress Elizabeth, was the first ruler in the world who abolished the death penalty. She said, "On my beat, on my watch, not a drop of Russian Russian blood, mind you, is <laughs> so going to be the rest of us don't fed. count.
0: <laughs> the rest of us don't count.
1: Mind you, there is one of her biggest enemies in the in the book, Count Osterman. I'm not going to say how the story evolves. Yes who was sentenced to quartering, torturing, hanging, being chopped to pieces. And even him, she only subjected uh, to a mock execution, which was deeply shocking and humiliating, but he stayed alive.
0: And that's pretty horrible as well, isn't it?
1: It's absolutely horrible having to survive a mock execution, but only the Um, And an observer notes that only a slight tremor in Osterman's hand when he adjusted his his wig, wig. (laughs) his emotion. So these people, they were big game, David. We're talking about a different make in humans.
0: What was her aim? She's up there, then she's down. Is it to just get back to where she was?
1: I think at some point, when she really started pursuing to gain what was hers, the throne of Russia, it was about saving Russia. Because interestingly enough, the reforms that her father had kicked off, the westernization of the world's largest and wealthiest country, was the very thing that brought upon its near demise. There were so many Westerners coming in, you know, in for a quick buck, as we say today, that the Russians were cast aside. And that everything that was Russian was getting lost. Even the Tsarist family, the imperial family, was becoming completely German and were no Romanovs at all anymore. And so for me, Elizabeth is actually the first people's princess. She very cleverly accentuated her Russianness, ness Loving the songs, loving the dances, loving the language, the dr- dressing as a Russian again. She was yes. the first people's princess.
0: Um, and... There was um, a seemingly a clash between how you dressed, whether you dressed Western or whether you dressed traditional, wasn't there?
1: Completely, because Peter the Great had abolished the traditional clothes, which left women almost entirely covered. They wore high headdresses called the Mm Kokoshnik, a wide, long, kilted dress that hid them completely. All that fashion was a leftover from the centuries of Muslimic oppression in Russia. And he put away with it and introduced Western clothes, which were so impractical and very cold in Russia.
0: Yes. You, you just mentioned the name of a, a piece of clothing. Um, through this book, uh, I, I struggled at first with all the Russian names and the, the, the names of the palace, and I would look at it and not try to tell it to myself. I would just recognize it as a shape. Um, are you? Oh, I mean, it could be that I'm just particularly uh, averse or find difficulty with foreign names, but uh, are you aware that this might be a reader problem?
1: I've actually tried to keep it simple in <laughs> Serena's daughter. The Serena is much more complicated, so I, everybody has only one name in the Sarina's daughter. I hardly use the patronyms system, you know, of saying Alexander Danilovich. I just call him Alexander or just Menshikov because I realise it's tricky. You have to pepper it and you have to sprinkle it in for it to stay the same. I mean, naming the pieces of clothing and the headdress. That was important to me. And I think we just like it. It draws them into the world.
0: Well, um, I mean, Game of Thrones proved what people will put up with, doesn't it? And then <laughs> how, how hard they will work. Certainly,
1: uh, George R. R. Martin has taught us all how to deal with characters in his ruthless way of just killing off a character people <laughs> have just started to love. No writer ever dared to do that as much as he does. So we've certainly learned something from him. <laughs>
0: What happens at the end of this book?
1: Oh, would I tell you? Well, is, oh, I mean, All right,
0: that... let me, let me, let me couch the question in a different way. <laughs> does it end well?
1: It ends well, but Elizabeth does gain what is rightfully hers, but it comes at a terrible price, and she paid that price really her whole life. She brought her soul to the altar of Russia. And she didn't sleep the same, in the same room two nights running and she drank and she gambled because she feared sleep, fearing the same might happen to her as what she did to somebody else. I can't say more. But in the same time, the love of her life stayed with her her whole life. And there were always rumors that they actually married in secret. And Catherine the Great later writes in her diary, nobody was ever as loved in Russia as this man, a good man, which is rarer than Blackstone
0: um you used to work in tv and have a sort of persona life um now you're doing the secret author thing um living the secret life in russia um 18th century russia which one suits you best
1: I love being on television for Bloomberg at the time doing actually financial news it was quite hard because I was doing mostly breakfast television shifts so I rose at two o'clock in the morning half past two my car would come for that I was finished by by 12 o'clock of course and then you have to sleep and (laughs) you struggle to find that rhythm. Um, I wouldn't rule it out to blend the two again you know if if People love my books as much as I hope they will. I wouldn't rule it out doing documentaries or, you know, travel programs, taking the transip, explaining them, following visually the traces of my leading ladies and those early Romanovs. That would be wonderful.
0: That sounds like a wonderful, wonderful project. The Tsarina's Daughter is out by Ellen Alpston. That novel is about families and power and the individuals in families fighting for power. I thought, that's the sort of thing that Shakespeare wrote about quite a lot. This interview, this conversation I had with Sir Stanley Wells, happened in 2003, when he'd written a book, Shakespeare for All Time. Now, Sir Stanley, he wasn't Sir Stanley when I spoke to him, but Sir Stanley has written many books about Shakespeare, and I asked him first this one Shakespeare for all time, which niche did that fill?
2: Well, I, I hope it's not. It's more than a niche. It's rather a large space, I think, because in this book, which I suppose is probably the last big book I'm likely to do, uh, I'm trying to cover the whole of Shakespeare, really. the, the the beginning from the beginning to now, virtually now. Uh, I'm writing about Shakespeare's life, about his life in Stratford, about his work in London, about his personality, insofar as one can get at his personality. But then also I'm writing about his work. There's a a long chapter, which I regard myself as the heart of the book, in which I talk about how he wrote what sort of a playwright, what sort of a poet he was, what conditions he was working for in the London theatres, for example, and how those conditioned in his work. I very much believe in seeing Shakespeare as a working playwright, as somebody who was in, in, in the muck of it, as it were. He was in the theatre working with his actors all the time, not in an ivory tower sending him scripts from, from afar. But then also I go on to what's happened because of Shakespeare, and this in some ways is, is, is to me the, the most enjoyable thing about was the most enjoyable thing about writing the book, looking at, at, at the, the adaptations of Shakespeare's plays, the performances, the great actors who performed them, the musical works that have come out of him, like you know, music work by Bellier's, for example, Verdi's operas, Vaughan Williams's operas, John in Love, that sort of thing. Paintings I'm very interested in too, the works of art that have come as a result of Shakespeare, and the criticism, the, the way that uh, People have forged Shakespeare, even, you know, there are a lot of extraordinary Shakespeare forgeries, particularly towards the end of the 18th century, and also the, the, the weird things that, that happen, you know, the, the, odd, the belief that people, that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, the curious theories that have been propounded about who, who else might have written Shakespeare, all of which I regard as total twaddle, I may say, uh, and, uh, well, just, just the, the whole Shakespeare phenomenon is what I've been interested in here.
0: And you're not dismissive of modern adaptations. For instance, the Baz Luhrmann film, Romeo and Juliet, you're not dismissive of that at all.
2: Oh, certainly, yes. I'm not a purist in the sense that I I think we should stick to uh, pseudo-Shakespearean performances. You can't get at that anyway. We can't turn ourselves into Elizabethans. So although I'm very interested in what happens at the Globe when they put on a a production which tries to reach the conditions of Shakespeare's time, I think it's just as important that, well, the last words of my book are that Shakespeare is in the water supply and that means that he's modified you know that the the works change uh, and evolve Uh, with the responses and the pressures of each generation of the talents of the people who who work with them. So that you still have Shakespeare often, even in works which are quite a long way away from the original texts and the original scripts. Let me just ask you about
0: the Globe for a minute. In the book there's a photograph of Mark Rylance dressed up as a woman acting at the Globe. That cross-dressing thing, uh, men playing the parts of women. Is it worth doing now?
2: I think it's a good thing to try. I have rather ambivalent feelings about using adult male actors for women's parts we have no record of any actor over the age of 18 playing the female parts we know that the female parts were played by males but they were boys how to define a boy is not always easy when do you stop being a boy uh well they seem to have felt around about the age of 18 i think it's to do a lot with the the unbroken voice so although uh i don't think that when mark Rylance is playing cleopatra he's getting at all close to elizabethan practice Nevertheless, I think it's interesting and worth doing uh, because we're very interested nowadays in the, the transgendering of of, of roles. The, the, I mean, in fact, um, it's not uncommon. It hasn't, and indeed, it, it, it goes back a long way. This, you know. I mean, uh, one of the greatest uh, actors of the eight, of the 19th century was Charlotte Cushman in America, who played not only Hamlet but. Uh, A lot of of of, uh, male roles, including, for example, um, Romeo. She played Romeo to her own sister's Juliet. So this this idea that you don't have to be of the sex of the character that you're playing to make a success of the role goes back a a very long way. Whether it's whichever way it is, male to female or female to male.
0: Just picking up on that word sex, you make the point throughout the book that Shakespeare is actually a very sexy writer.
2: Oh yes. I think Shakespeare was a very sexy writer. Sexy uh, uh, right from the beginning in the early plays. In had even more in the early plays, which perhaps is understandable. Shakespeare's imagination worked very strongly in sexual terms, I think. Uh, like anybody of very high verbal capacity, I think, his mind would move quickly from one sense of a word to another, which includes what you and I would call dirty meanings, and he was very, very perceptive of those. And it's you know, curious, nowadays, quite often, Romeo and Juliet, for example, is set for uh, young children to read without perhaps everybody realising that uh, it's a very, very rude play indeed. Um, some of the body in the play is, is, is it, it's full of, of sexual meanings which have often gone unper- unperceived actually. Uh, It's easy to think of Romeo and Juliet only in terms of the romantic scenes of the young lovers, uh, the innocent young lovers. But they're not innocent. (laughs) I mean, what they want is to get into bed with each other, and. Shakespeare's very conscious of this. And she's only 13, isn't she? Yes, she is, yes, yes. And Shakespeare makes a strong point of that, too. Uh, It it, it reiterated in in an unusual way for Shakespeare, the age of Juliet. Many of his characters, we've no idea how old he thought of them as. You know, like in Much Ado, for example, Beatrice and Benedict, Hero and Claudio, they could be anywhere between sort of 18 and, well, early 40s. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas Juliet is very explicitly stated to be not yet 14, and there she is uh, giving st- uh, expressions to s- of strong sexual desire, which are, are soon uh, consummated, of course.
0: Can you get a flavour of how this man worked? You know, did he sit at his desk with his quill, with the, no- the words coming out as a torrent, or was he working painstakingly line by line?
2: My concept of Shakespeare's working methods is that there was often, not always, often a lot of fundamental thinking that had to go on before he put pen to paper, and I think that sometimes he mulled over a play, perhaps even for years, uh, not knowing that at one point he would write, well, the play I particularly have in mind is King Lear, which I suspect he had in mind throughout his career until the moment came when he wrote it, when he was round about 40 years old. Uh, But once he started putting pen to paper, I think there is evidence to show that he was liable to overflow in, as you say, a torrent of words. I I think we, we have evidence in particular in the text that they've come down to us and also even in the one piece of manuscript which we believe to be in Shakespeare's hand, the section of a play called Sir Thomas More, that is clearly written very much on the wings, very little punctuation. Uh, the the senses flow rapidly in, into one another uh, but at the same time he then did go back and rethink if he thought he'd made a mess of something and there's evidence within that particular play, Love's Labour's Lost, that he got, he got into a tangle with one of the speeches as it happens it was accidentally printed in two different versions and the first version shows him starting off with a great bang with a wonderful speech of love from the main character of the play Birun, and then he gets lost and so he starts again and then the rest of the speech as it finishes I quote the whole speech in my book because it's such a wonderful speech uh, is an extremely polished piece of writing so I think it's a mixture of the carefully premeditated but then the imagination taking over and 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 taking over his intellect and and winging its way through his pen over the page because in that bit that you talk about there's the spelling is all over the place. Well, yes. Yeah, but spelling was a very fluid thing in Shakespeare's time. A lot of our young children nowadays would be only too pleased if they'd lived in Shakespeare's time. They could spell a word in any way they liked. I mean, in the excerpt from Sir Thomas More, the word sheriff is spelt in five different ways within three lines. It's sometimes a matter of imitating pronunciation, I think. In printed books, it's sometimes actually a matter of fitting the line into the space available. You could, you could collapse a word or you could expand it if you had more, more space than, than you needed. Yes, spelling was very fluid. In the section
0: on analysis by scholars of Shakespeare's work, you make the point that people see Shakespeare in their own image. A lawyer writing about him will think, oh, he had to be a lawyer. So I wonder, are you confident that you aren't doing the same thing?
2: Uh, of course I'm not, no. Uh, I'm a man of, of my time. Uh, I, I, inevitably, I respond to Shakespeare with the eyes of um, a 20th, mostly 20th century chap. And also, I mean, I can even see myself perhaps committing the same fault that I accuse others of. I mean, my emphasis on Shakespeare is very much as a man of Stratford. Uh, perhaps the most original argument in the book is that Shakespeare... Uh, worked much more in Stratford and much less in London than we've been inclined to think. And I produce, I think, some fairly strong evidence towards that. But at the same time I'm, I'm subject to the accusation that I, a man of Stratford as it were, because I've lived and worked in Stratford for much of my life, am th- thus seeing Shakespeare through, through my own eyes. We're all bound by the circumstances in which we live and work.
0: Yeah, yeah this bounces off the page and you think this must resonate with the writer. Because you say, why would the man, Shakespeare, with the second biggest house in town, want to spend time in London.
2: We know that he had to live in London, but the only evidence we have about where he lived in London is in lodgings, a room in somebody else's house. Uh, whereas in Stratford, he had this bloody great house, wonderful house, if only it had survived, people would have a very different concept of Shakespeare. All we have are the foundations of new place. But it was a house with five gables, and I reproduced in my book a photograph of part of the Shakespeare Hotel, which is very close by, which has five gables. And I reproduced that with the idea that people may get, get some concept of the grandeur that was there for Shakespeare, waiting for him whenever he could get back to Stratford. So this was a man who lived in some style? When he was in Stratford, he certainly did, yes. He must have had a number of servants. Uh, he was rich. Uh, you know, the, the fortune that he left at his death would certainly uh, be the equivalent of a million or more nowadays. He, he was a wealthy man, uh, and uh, he, he was able to keep his family in, some, in, in considerable style in Stratford. And, uh, and yet, when he was in London, he lived in, in a house in Silver Street here in London. He rented a room. He could have afforded to buy a house in London. Eventually he did. He bought the Blackfriars gatehouse in 1613 I think it is. But he was at the end of his writing career by then and there's no evidence that he ever lived in it. So he's
0: not the inattentive husband and father that some writers have shown us?
2: I don't think there's any strong evidence that Shakespeare abandoned his family for his work in London. He he provided for them with some Uh, Sorry, he provided for them a large house in Stratford, very good living conditions. He didn't abandon them in any way, no.
0: What about that theory that uh, I read in a biography that Shakespeare, as a young man, got a job in a big house up north, worked with a theatrical company. You say no, that he actually stayed all the time before he went to London and Stratford.
2: Uh, yes Uh, there is a theory which has been much promulgated in the last few years that shakespeare is the same man as a man called william shakeshaft who is mentioned in the will of a lancashire landowner at the time that shakespeare was about seventeen or eighteen this would imply that shakespeare left stratford went up to this household, this Catholic household and the fact that it's Catholic is one of the main reasons why people are so interested in it because they're trying to argue that some of them that Shakespeare was Catholic in his religious inclinations. Uh, This involves assuming that Shakespeare soon after school went up to this household and and worked there in some undefined capacity but then not long afterwards went back because we know that he married Anne Hathaway a little later and had his children, uh, three children, well, one pair of twins and one other child, and then there's a long gap. And I argue quite strongly uh, in the book against the theory that Shakespeare was, uh, went up to Lancashire and therefore also against the theory that Shakespeare had strongly Catholic affiliations. I think myself that Shakespeare must have worked for a theater company for some years before he's actually heard of as working for a theatre company. But, you know, the scholar ultimately often has to learn to say, I don't know, and one has to say, I don't know what Shakespeare was doing uh, in the early years of his manhood before he first appears in London at the age of about 28.
0: You make the point that this is a working playwright, as you can see on the page, because he doesn't write, the character says this, he writes the actor. Kemp says this.
2: Yeah, I think there's clear evidence in some of the texts, as they've come down to us, that Shakespeare had an actor in mind, prominently in his mind, as he was writing the part. Uh, Sometimes a play printed from his manuscript shows that the manuscript had not the character name, not Dogberry, but Kemp, Will Kemp, the famous comedian of his time, so that he was thinking more of of the actor often than of the character. It's rather as if nowadays a script writer, for example, perhaps for a uh, a comic, a comedy show, uh, was writing more w- for, as it were, Ronnie Barker than th- and thinking more of the comic actor rather than of the character that the character that the, that the actor portrayed.
0: Kemp, that's the one who famously danced all the way from London to Norwich in nine days. Is that
2: where the phrase nine days wonder came from? I don't know. I, I don't know. That's an interesting possibility. I don't know. But he didn't. He, he, actually, the nine days were spread over about a month, so it was nine separate days within a longer period. He didn't start on one day and get to Norwich on the ninth
0: day. No. But um, it, it made me realise that Shakespeare was mixing with
2: quite anarchic souls. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed he was. Uh, and, and one of the things I try to do in the book is to look at some of Shakespeare's colleagues and associates and friends, uh, some of whom were very rum characters indeed. George Wilkins, the, who a fellow playwright who collaborated with Shakespeare in, in Pericles, uh, was a brothel keeper, an innkeeper, but also a brothel keeper. He was prosecuted for assault of, of one of the women in, in, in his inn. Yes, it was a colourful world that Shakespeare lived, in. we, we might think of it perhaps in terms of what we mean by Dickensian, you know, there was a a very wide range of of social life within a very small area of London and Shakespeare must have participated within the whole of it. Did you get further empathy for
0: this man when you saw the Rose Theatre being excavated?
2: Yeah, I I was involved in the the excavation of the Rose Theatre which uh, uh, in 1989, I think it was, uh, and it was it was quite remarkable to stand over those ruins and to think this is where Shakespeare did his early theatre go.
0: So Stanley Wells talking to me in 2003, and he's one of those interviewees who manages to share a depth of passion, and with him a depth of knowledge, and although he was talking to me about his book Shakespeare for All Time, he's written so much on Shakespeare, and it's all good. This is the Author Archive Podcast. I'm David Freeman. Back soon with more.